Boutique Journal Club podcast for August 2016. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the last month's critical care literature and talk about what caught our eye. Well, August was a diverse sort of month in the intensive care literature. So let's start off with JAMA, effect of a cerebral protection device on brain lesions following a transcatheter aortic valve in patients with severe aortic stenosis. The use of TAVI with balloon expandable sapien valve for severe aortic stenosis in patients deemed inoperable is increasing. However, stroke associated with a threefold increase in mortality is an important complication, and ischemic lesions, as determined by diffusion weighted MRI, are found in as many as 80% of patients. Recently, the Deflect 3 trial evaluated the TriGuard HDH embolic deflection device, reported a numerical reduction in diffusion weighted MRI endpoints that did not meet statistical significance. Hence, equipoise remains. So, this single centre, investigator-led, blinded RCT from a German heart centre, determined the effect of a cerebral protection device the Claret Montage dual filter system in patients undergoing transfemoral TAVI with the Medtronic core valve. In 100 patients, mean age of 80 years, followed up at 2 and 7 days after TAVI, the cerebral protection device was associated with a decreased number of new MRI lesions at day 2 from 4 versus 5, 98% of patients in both groups were lesion positive by day two. There was a lower new lesion volume after TAVI, 242 cubic millimetres versus 527. And there were no difference in recorded adverse clinical events. There was a 10% stroke rate in both. In summary, this study reports a high proportion of MRI lesions in patients after TAVI with reduced number and size in patients who received a cerebral protection device. No clinical benefit was observed. So, although encouraging, this is hypothesis generating with larger studies required to assess the effect of long-term neurological and cognitive function. So watch this space. Okay, let's get back into the intensive care literature and look at kids. So in JAMA, we've got association of non-invasive ventilation strategies with mortality and bronchopulmonary dysplasia among preterm infants. So BPD is the highest prevalence complication of prematurity and this systematic review and meta-analysis examines the efficacy of various ventilation strategies used to prevent BPD in preterm infants, that is less than 33 weeks gestation within 24 hours of birth who had not been intubated with the outcome a composite of BPD or death at 36 weeks. The seven ventilation strategies examined were nasal CPAP with surfactant selectively given for criteria of nasal CPAP failure, two, intubation and surfactant followed by immediate extubation called inshore, three, less invasive surfactant administration, LISA, and that's surfactant via a thin diameter catheter, 
NPPV, non-invasive intermittent positive pressure ventilation, nebulized surfactant plus NCPAP, surfactant via LMA followed by nasal CPAP, and finally mechanical ventilation via an endotracheal tube. A complex Bayesian random effects network meta-analysis was performed and in 30 trials 5,600 infants were enrolled and the following reported. The primary outcome of death or BPT occurred in 33%, that's 505 deaths and 1160 cases of BPD. Compared to mechanical ventilation, LISA, which is less invasive surfactant administration via a thin uh, catheter, had the lowest odds of the primary outcome. Odds ratio was 0.49, 95% confidence intervals 0.3 to 0.79 as well as BPD, odds ratio 0.53. Compared to nasal CPAP alone, LISA had a primary outcome of 0.58 um, and an air leak outcome of 0.24, odds ratio. Ranking probabilities indicated LISA was the best strategy, but this finding was not robust for death when limited to higher quality evidence. So, overall, this review found that early surfactant administration via LISA was the best management strategy and ensure the second best for non-ventilated spontaneously breathing preterm infants with or at high risk of respiratory distress syndrome, along with early CPAP application. When limited to higher quality studies, some findings for LISA were no longer significant and the lower likelihood of death was not robust. Therefore, further well-designed trials with large sample size comparing LISA to nasal CPAP are warranted and are underway. Let's stay with paediatrics and in critical care medicine we have nutritional status based on body mass index is associated with morbidity and mortality in mechanically ventilated critically ill children in the PICU. This study uses prospectively collected data from two multi-centre cohort paediatric nutrition studies in 90 PICUs in 16 countries to describe the association of PICU admission BMI and clinical outcomes. From 1,600 eligible critically ill children, they report the following. The mean age was 5.4 and 55% were male. The distribution of BMI was 18% were underweight, 54% were normal, 15% were overweight and 13% were obese. After adjustment for severity of illness and sight, 60-day mortality, odds were higher in underweight and odds of hospital-acquired infection were higher in underweight and obese kids. Underweight were also associated with fewer ventilator-free days. The authors summarised that suboptimal nutrition was documented in nearly half of patients and being underweight was associated with increased mortality and hospital-acquired infection and fewer VFDs. Obesity was associated with increased hospital-acquired infection and longer hospital length of stay in survivors. This is not surprising and confirms previous studies. The use of BMI as opposed to weight for age, may generate debate as both have strengths and limitations as surrogate markers of nutritional status in children. So what do we do with, inf with this information? 
The authors argue that future studies that target nutritional intervention in the higher risk cohorts, that is the underweight and obese, are required. Seems like a fair enough conclusion. Okay, let's move from children to long-term survival in adults. So again, in critical care medicine, we've got long-term quality of life among survivors of severe sepsis, analysis of two international trials. This secondary analysis of the Access and Prowess shock trials examines the long-term outcomes of over 2,000 patients who were functional and living independently at home prior to hospitalisation. They report that the selection of well-independent patients resulted in a cohort with a mean age of 63 years who did have comorbidities including diabetes, pulmonary disease, cancer, kidney disease, ischemic heart disease and congestive cardiac failure. It's just that they were living independently. The ICU length of stay was 11 days. The hospital length of stay was 22 days. The six-month mortality was 30%. Uh, 12 months, 37%. At six months, in patients who were alive, 58% were at home and fully functional, 23% were at home with help, 5% were in a nursing home, and 5% were in acute hospitals. At one year, in patients who were alive, 70% were at home and fully functional, and 30% were either at home with help in nursing homes or in acute hospitals. Over the year after ICU, more than a third reported problems with mobility and almost had half had problems with their usual activities. A fifth had problems with self-care. Most of the patients who had problems at six months had problems at a year. The predictors of problems with mobility and self-care at six months included age, need for mechanical ventilation or dialysis of greater than 14 days while chronic disease and vasopressor duration were not. So what does this add to our knowledge? Firstly, the use of an international cohort selected for pre-hospital independence and wellness is unique. Secondly, even a well cohort of sepsis survivors have significant problems in their recovery. A third die, a third of survivors have not returned to independent living, living by six months, and many have quality of life issues. This reinforces the idea that functional measures are required in addition to mortality in sepsis research. Let's stay with recovery and in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine we have factors associated with functional recovery among older intensive care unit survivors. So how many and to what degree do adult survivors of critical care achieve functional recovery to pre-ICU status and what factors predict this? The ability to answer this question is complicated by the lack of prospectively collected pre-ICU data. This observational study overcame this by drawing from 754 community-dwelling over 70-year-olds from the Precipitating Events Project, PEP, an ongoing longitudinal study that evaluates 13 functional activities on a monthly basis. They described that PEP included over 70-year-olds who were initially not disabled and oversampled if physically frail and excluded from enrolment if cognitively impaired, life expectancy less than a year or non-English speaking. 77% of participants died after a median of 93 months and 6% dropped out after a median of 27 months. 
from the 754, there were 218 ICU admissions and 186 survivors, allowing the investigators to observe functional recovery following ICU in this nested cohort. 8% were from nursing homes. There was a mix of ICU admissions. ICU length of stay was two days. Hospital length of stay was seven days. Only 20% were ventilated. 5% had shock. The median disabilities before ICU was four and after was 11. At six months after ICU, the median disabilities were five. 50% made functional recovery. A third were alive with increased disability and 16% had died. Median time to recovery was three months. Predictors of increased likelihood of recovery within six months of admission were higher BMI and higher functional self-efficacy, while increase in disability, severe hearing impairment or vision impairment were associated with reduced recovery. So overall this tells us that approximately half of older adults that survive critical illness recover to pre-ICU functions within six months. The factors associated with this recovery were not related to the critical illness, perhaps with the exception of increase in disability. The impact of hearing and vision impairment and functional self-efficacy and BMI are important and new areas that could be modified or at least investigated. Okay, in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine again, we've got a complicated one. Urinary glycosoaminoglycans, or GAGs, predict outcomes in septic shock and ARDS. So this unique study describes the use of state-of-the-art mass spectrometry to demonstrate the presence of glycocalyx, a gag-rich layer lining the vascular lumen in kidneys, with the onset of renal injury and hospital mortality in three different cohorts of ICU patients, sepsis, ARDS and trauma. So the first question is why? Well, there is increasing appreciation of the importance of GAG to lung and kidney homeostasis in that it contributes to endothelial functions such as maintenance of the barrier to fluid and proteins, mechanotransduction of the shear stress and converting that into nitric oxide production and regular regulation of leukocyte adhesion to endothelium. In animal models of sepsis or septic shock, they've shown that gag induction occurs and leads to the hypothesis that human septic shock could result in pathological degradation of gag fragments and excretion in the urine, with a possible association between urinary gag, renal failure and mortality. So what did they do? They enrolled patients in, the th in three cohorts, so there were 30 vasopressor-dependent septic shock patients, 24 with trauma and 70 with ARDS, and they collected urine within 24 hours of admission, then performed mass spectrometry to detect gag, gag fragments and sulfated fractions, and that was heparin sulfate, chondroitin sulfate and hyaluronic acid. They found that first of all the primary outcome was worsening renal function and that was stage two criteria that had occurred in the first one to three days. And as expected, septic shock patients were more likely to develop renal function or die than trauma patients. Urinary gags and outcome, they showed that gag fragments were significantly elevated in patients with septic shock compared to their surgical ICU or trauma comparators 
and correlated with renal dysfunction and mortality. And there were patterns to that correlation. So heparin sulfate was independent of Apache's while hyaluronic acid and chondroitin sulfate varied with Apache. Urinary concentrations of gag fragments correlated with renal dysfunction and septic shock, as did changes in concentrations. Urinary concentrations were associated with mortality and septic shock and were independent of severity of illness. They also looked at alternatives to mass spectrometry because it's an expensive measure of GAG and they used dimethylmethylene blue which is a colorimetric assay that detects sulfated GAGs in urine at a fraction of the cost so it's $2 for that compared to $200 for uh, the more expensive test and they found that the simple point of care test of colorimetric assay was accurate. ARDS patients were interesting as they also um, showed changes in their urinary gag. So they all had normal renal function at enrolment, but the, of the 22 of 70 who developed AKI later in their stay had significantly elevated urinary gags at day 0 and 3. And this was also associated with mortality. So this effect was lost when it wasn't normalised for creatinine, but when, when normalised for creatinine was present. Finally, baseline gag was higher in ARDS than septic patients, raising the possibility of pulmonary-induced leakage of gag fragments from the lungs that sort of spilled into the urine. So in summary, this study reports an association between urinary gag fragments and acute kidney injury and mortality in patients with septic shock and ARDS, even after controlling for severity of illness. Although they used mass spectrometry, very expensive and not readily available, colorimetric assays with DMMB were effective. So the testing of urinary gag in prospective ARDS slash sepsis studies using colorimetric assays to validate their role as a predictive marker of acute kidney injury is needed and perhaps could pave the way for future studies with early detection of AKI. Let's move to the far north of Australia where we've got melioidosis causing critical illness, a review of 24 years of experience from the Royal Darwin Hospital ICU. This observational study from Royal Darwin, the major tertiary ICU servicing northern Australia, describes the incidence, characteristics and outcomes of melioidosis from a prospective database. This disease, caused by the gram-negative organism Burkholderia pseudomallei, is increasingly seen in Southeast Asia, Africa, the Americas and northern Australia. The bacteria is transmitted from water and soil sources and causes a spectrum of illness from skin lesions without sepsis to fulminant pneumonia with systemic sepsis. As it is intrinsically resistant to many antibiotics, it was upgraded to a Tier 1 biothreat select agent by the CDC in 2012. So, what does the Darwin experience tell us? In the 24 years, there were 207 of 810 patients with culture-modified melioidosis in the Northern Territory who required ICU admission. So 26% of patients who get culture-positive needed ICU. The mortality for the ICU cohort, 34%, and for those who didn't need it, 5%. 
and this decreased over time from the first eight years where it was 92% in the ICU group to 26% in the last eight years. So obviously things changed a lot during that period. Median age is 50 years, 67% of patients were Indigenous Australians, and there was a mix of rural and urban origin. In the ICU cohort, pneumonia was the presenting illness in 75%, bacteremic sepsis 9%, urinary 3%, skin 3%. 87% had bacteremia and 74% had septic shock. Over 50% had abscesses and they ranged from spleen, prostate, liver, kidneys, muscle. 90% of patients received meropenem. 43% had adjunct GCSF. Median timed negative culture was four days, although it took up to three weeks in severe pneumonia for sputum to become culture negative. In the ICU cohort, the need for mechanical ventilation decreased over, the t over time from 100% to 60% and renal replacement therapy increased from 12 to 44%. ICU length of stay was 7 days. Apache 323 and duration of mechanical ventilation 5.4 days. After multivariate analysis, the factors associated with ICU admission were indigenous ethnicity, diabetes, hazardous alcohol use, CCF and rheumatic heart disease. The authors then provide a summary of advice of how they believe they've improved mortality. They moved to an intensivist-led model of ICU care. They introduced meropenem or keftazidine as a first-line agent given early. They added GCSF. Um, and uh, the other things that you can sort of pick up from the study was that early screening and recognition of the disease, um, particularly at times of increased risk, CT screening for abscess and aggressive early vasopressor renal support. So it's a kind of how to deal with meliodosis study and really interesting reading. Let's finish off with JAMA and we've got the VANISH trial. Effect of early vasopressin versus norepinephrine on kidney failure in patients with septic shock. So the VAST trial, the largest vasopressin trial to date, reported no difference in mortality when vasopressin, up to 0.03 units per minute, was added to existing noradrenaline treatment compared to noradrenaline alone in patients with septic shock. However, a surprising post-hulk result was hypothesis generating and that result was that early vasopressin commenced when NORAD was less than 15 mics per minute was associated with the mortality benefit. Since then other analyses have suggested that this effect may be due to prevention of organ dysfunction and higher doses up to 0.06 units per minute may be more effective. So the VANISH trial, vasopressin versus norepinephrine as initial therapy in septic shock, was designed to test whether early vasopressin use, titrated up to 0.06 units per minute, would improve kidney outcomes compared with norepinephrine. The details, it was a factorial 2x2 two two design in 18 adult ICUs enrolling 409 adult patients with septic shock requiring vasopressors despite fluid resuscitation within six hours of shock onset from February 13 to May 15. They were randomly allocated to vasopressin plus hydrocortisone, vasopressin plus placebo, norepinephrine plus hydrocortisone or norepinephrine plus placebo. 
vasopressin was initially given up to 0.06 units per minute, norepinephrine up to 12 mics per minute, and once this point was reached, patients were then given hydrocort for 50 milligrams or placebo, six hourly for five days, then 12 hourly for three days, then daily for three days, with quicker weaning allowed if shock resolved. If the patient was still hypotensive, they were allowed to receive open-label catecholamine, which were weaned first if shock recovery occurred. So at baseline, the groups were balanced. Study drugs started at a median of 3.5 hours after shock diagnosis, with 80% receiving norepinephrine at a median dose of 0.16 mics per kilo per minute at randomization. The primary outcome, kidney failure free days to day 28, there was no difference, P equals 0.88. And this was measured as survivors that didn't develop kidney failure, 57% for vasopressin, 59% for NORAD, and median number of kidney failure free days in other patients who died or experienced kidney failure or both. Secondary outcomes, the groups received similar quantities of IV fluid, total fluid balance, serum lactate, heart rate, Serum creatinine was lower and urinite output slightly higher over the first seven days in the VP group. Renal replacement therapy rate was 25% for vasopressin, 35% for NORAD, odds ratio of 0.4, 95% confidence intervals of 0.2 to 0.7. 28-day mortality was 31% with VP, 28% with NORAD, 31% with hydrocort, 28% with placebo. There was no significant interaction between hydrocortisone and vasopressin for 28-day mortality, and there was no difference in serious adverse events. So overall, this study was well-designed and tells us that the early use of vasopressin up to 0.06 units per minute to treat septic shock does not increase the number of kidney failure-free days or reduce mortality compared to norepinephrine. Vasopressin and norepinephrine appear equally effective and no interaction was observed with hydrocortisone. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club August 2016. Come to the website, have a look around, have a look at our new logbook, or we'll see you in a month. Thank you. (laughs) 